So we're using science to, to constantly say, can we find ways where we optimize these things that we can, that we can control when, when they're studying on their own? Can we, can we find things where we can measure that if we do it this way as opposed to that way, it works better? Or, it, uh, or even it works better in these situations. And that's why um, both, both artificial intelligence and other techniques can, can have a big impact. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. Hi, I'm Jeannie Allen, and welcome to a special edition of Reality Check. My guest today is Dr. Ulrich Christensen, who's an expert in learning technology. Ulrich is from Copenhagen and is recognized worldwide as an expert in pioneering adaptive learning tools. Why does that matter? Why is data-driven technologies? What are these things about adaptive learning? Well, it turns out that how our students learn is as important as where they learn. In fact, more important, because you can create great institutions and schools You can make sure that colleges and universities and training in the workforce are good for people. But at the end of the day, unless we really know that they're gaining value and what works, we're not going to make the kind of progress that we can. Ulrich Christensen is the co-founder of the Area 9 Group in 2006, which has been the forefront of adaptive and personalized learning across the country. Uh, his primary focus is to make sure that there are fourth-generation platforms out there serving uh, the needs of learning science. Dr. Christensen is also on the boards of Leap Innovation, the Mastery Transcript Consortium, and we're going to figure out what that is uh, today. So, Albert, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me here. So there's so much in your bio. It's kind of hard to go through everything <laughs> because unless you're in this on a daily basis... It's kind of mysterious. So let me start with, why did you start a company or an organization to explore adaptive learning? And what is that? So the why actually starts a lot earlier. So back in the early 90s, I'm a physician by training, and, uh, and I was interested in human errors. Why do, why do people make errors when they get under pressure? Why do doctors and nurses not perform optimally in the OR when they get under pressure? And that led to a, a deeper appreciation for the fact that actually some of that cognitive stress that leads to making those errors come from the fact that we haven't learned things in a useful way in the first place. And that's not because doctors and nurses are not trying really hard when we go through medical school or nursing school. It's because we're tr probably trying to do too much in too short of a time, at least with the kind of methods we're using today. So that led to an interest in, could we find a way to fundamentally do things differently? Could we, could we look at, do we have any kind of research out there that we could hang our hat on? Uh, and after we'd built very sophisticated simulators for years and some of the most precious learning environments, we could see that we needed things that worked more at scale. So we found some research back actually from the early 80s about if you teach one-on-one, -on -one, that has a massive impact on outcomes. 
And this is um, uh, something done by a researcher called Benjamin Bloom, where he showed that you can get an enormous impact on one-on-one instruction, not meaning that it's the only way that works. Bloom's that, taxonomy, right? Yeah, the same guy with Bloom's taxonomy that has all sorts of limitations, but he also did a, a remarkable study around, uh, which is referred to as the uh, two sigma, the two standard deviation study, where it was like enormous impact of one-on-one instruction compared to classroom instructions. At the level where the average who got one-on-one instruction performed as the best in the classroom instruction situation. So we were thinking, was there a way where we could try to understand what is happening in that kind of instructional setting or learning setting? And there were basically two things that, that came out of it. One was, of course, the expectat- like what we expected, which was the emotional bond. It's really, really hard to disengage when you're in a one-on-one situation. So the motivation part is obvious. Mm-hmm. But there was actually something that was more prominent, which was very, very good one-on-one tutors or instructors or uh, coaches, they were asking a lot of questions. They were trying to, very in very, very short cycles, make sure that what was going on actually worked. They would constantly be cross-checking, does, does this work? Are you getting it? Um, let me just ask you a, a question to check that you've understood what I just said. Let's try to solve this problem. And we were thinking, maybe we could actually get computers to do this. Maybe we could solve part of this like bulk of learning kind of problem um, by getting computers to replicate it. And long story short, it kind of worked. And that's what adaptive learning refers to, this notion that you're going to try to replicate the one-on-one individual instruction that results in better results through the use of computerized or through technology. Yeah, so so basically to get to some of the uh, fundamental knowledge, not to substitute all kinds of other things, but simply realizing that if we ever want to get to where we think humans need to be in the future, where which is like we need to be better at communication, we need to be better at showing empathy, we need to be better at so many things, and at the same time we may even need to learn more things than we did in the past, we need to find ways where we can get some of it out of the way in a cheaper and more efficient way than in the past. And that is not to cut teachers, it's 100% a matter of making sure that when we are in the situations that could really prepare humans for the future, that we actually are better prepared. So you and I have been spending the last couple of days at the GSV Leaders Summit. Uh, GSV is Global Silicon Valley Advisors, Ventures, but basically they are the group uh, that has been convening people who are doing these cutting-edge organizations and ideas and implementing investments in a world to break the mold for learning, right? Or they call like bending the arc of human potential. And so we just listened to and participated with people from K through career issues, workforce and skills. And it was a lot about this data science and research and and getting to the heart of how people learn and making it better. So what are some of the things you heard that struck you as possibly pathbreaking or positive for this world of learning? So I think that that one of the things that... So I've been participating in these uh, events for years. And I think one of the most encouraging things is that we're moving away from a a hearsay and a a marketing-driven approach to something where we're actually discussing science and we're discussing results and how do we validate what we're doing. We, with my old background in medicine, like there is nobody who can prescribe a drug that hasn't been proven to work. Whereas in education, we've had a habit of doing all sorts of stuff 
that is basically because we think it works. And, and one of the things that I think is, is a relief to hear is that we're not now just discussing the naive um, aspirations and of the could have, would have, should have companies who would like to uh, end poverty in Africa. We're discussing companies who are realistically saying, don't do this this way. Don't invest in AI, as one of the panelists said this morning, um, which is like, if an investor hears that the company is based on AI, don't invest. That is not the discussion we had like some years ago. And I think that, that if we move towards something where we actually begin to develop yardsticks for measuring what works and what doesn't work, it is much easier, regardless of political point of view, points of view, to say, let's find out how we can improve this. And then after that, because I'm not a politician, but I'm a learning scientist, I believe that if we provide a scientist a solid basis for the people who are then making their priorities, we can, we can now have a political discussion. But in the past, we've had it the other way around, where we've been hoping that, or, and thinking that just because our kids went to school and we did, that we are all experts. And that's what science can help like, remove the, the blindfold of. Do you think a lot of people, though, out there as consumers of education think that someone already figured this out? Because it's interesting to me, as, as I've gotten to listen to you and other people, going, yeah, gosh, what are they doing in the classroom? Are they, are they actually using materials that they know work? Are they using processes? And then back to your point about one-on-one instruction, how do you make sure that you're holding the attention and the interaction when you have, whether it's 10 or 15 or 30 people? So, so I think that we have an interesting paradox, which is the method is not new. Like, we've known from probably the 70s that, that how to actually handle individual differences. What we have not known is to how to do it at scale. We've, and, and at the same time, we put more and more pressure on teachers to try to do this without respecting the fact that it's really, really hard to do. So I grew up with two teachers. I've known since before I, I, I probably was 10 that the right way to do it was to do a lot of the things we are aspiring to do today, which is like handle everybody on an individual basis, differentiated learning, teaching, all these things. But my parents were also saying, I had this discussion with my dad just last night where he said, I would have loved to do it, but I just had to say I don't have the resources to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm running out of time every day because nobody has told me what I should not do anymore. And I think that 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 balance between... Yeah, between, um, like, we've not been able to figure out uh, uh, this order of magnitude breakthrough so that we can get some of the things out of the way. And I think that some of the discussions we had at this conference around could we actually do some of the grading of papers and some of the grading of homework, if that could happen automatically? I, I've, I've met one instructor, uh, one teacher once, who said, I really love to grade homework. But I've also met hundreds who are like, if I could spend my time on what I'm really good at, which is motivating the students, mm-hmm. bringing them the contest, like encouraging discourse, all these things that only humans can do for the foreseeable future, would they really choose grading homework over that? Right. There is a recent McKinsey report that is showing that like, you can substantially reduce some of this trivial and laborious work. And I honestly think that it's only people who are really argumentative, like, who, like, profoundly, who profoundly will argue that I really want to grade homework ahead of doing the things that are harder. I understand that it's also something that when you're a young teacher and you're inexperienced, there is some comfort in just doing some scripted things. Right. And I think that this is where a lot of the debate has been unfair to the teachers because we've, been, we, we've known what the goal was, but we've forgotten that there is a reality to implement it. 
both in terms of capacity, but also in terms of preparing teachers to be able to do this. Because the last thing that will go away here is I actually think the teachers. It could be a few politicians who are um, mentally limited enough that they would use this to save money. But the reality is we're facing an enormous yeah. need in the future for more learning and for better performance of humans. So this is actually the chance to be able to say, let's actually use this to open up so that teachers can do the things that teachers are really good at. And help them become more effective. I exactly. Mean, you know, there are these tensions and these controversies as we've been talking about. You know, those of us who believe that maybe one of the best, if not the best solutions out there to helping educate students today is giving them a chance to go somewhere else. It's not that we think that kids should have to go somewhere else other than their zone public school. Yes, parents should have a right to choose a school, just like we have a right to choose lots of things in life, higher ed and whatever. But the reality is their schools are not working for them because of precisely what you just said. So imagine if every educator, whether they're a traditional public school or something that doesn't even look like that today or an alternative charter school or wherever, had those tools. But how do you start when most of us are still uncomfortable with technology? How do you, how do you bridge that gap? So, so I think that, that um, before, before even talking about technology, I think it's important to talk about how is school organized? This thing where, where, we, where we decide, is school something where the teacher is the oracle that, that is, the, is delivering instruction to the student, or is school an environment where you learn? And I actually think whether you're talking private or public or whatever, I think, I think they're, like I come from a country where there are amazing public schools that are able to deliver absolutely great experiences where, where that has nothing to do with whether you fund it one way or the other, but I think it's a matter of making the decision that you create learning environments. I think there are schools in this country that are like, mind-blowingly good at creating environments where kids can exhibit creativity and they can learn. And, and honestly, some of them are public, some of them are private. And, and it, it, what is really important is do you have that vision for mm-hmm. how education should happen? And then next, if you have that vision, often we run into this, this uh, resource constraint where we are like, wow, we'd like to accomplish this, but we cannot do it unless we refactor some of what we've been doing in the past. And I think that's where technology comes in. But technology is, is, uh, is something that augments what we're doing. It's something right. that gives us some opportunities that we otherwise didn't have. Like when you, when you have the guy who's moving stuff around and now he suddenly have a, a mechanical thing or a motorized truck to move things around as opposed to in the old days. But, but we have a habit of, or we have a tendency of thinking about technology as this thing that will totally change everything. And not necessarily, it might change how we can perform as humans, but it's not the, the goal in itself. Right, you start with the design of the school, the design of the classroom, the design of learning, and then figure out what are the tools I need yes. to be able to do that. If I'm teaching writing and I want to teach writing and penmanship, I need a pen, right? If I want to make sure that I allow students to discover maybe a place across the world, then they're going to want access to the technology that allows them to do that. Why can't every student at whatever level have access to the same thing you'd see if you were going through a tour on the other side of the world or you're near the pyramids and you're watching interactive video of that? Why can't that not be passive, but why can't you build that? It's funny because um, 
on one hand, on one hand, I I would love to tell you about this amazing climate game we're building right now in in Europe, where we've teamed up with a group of um, of environmental scientists and gotten their models, and actually we're building a game that can allow kids to play with the environment and actually figure out what would go, be going on, where they can play with how do we save the environment mm-hmm. on one side. On the other hand, I think that that's an outlier. And this is where you may never invite me back. Yeah, I love because it. Because the, the uh, reality is that I also, on a very, uh, in very close proximity, experienced a teacher who would be giving the kids a, a piece of text in history with, uh, that was extremely hard to read. Like, um, and it was, it, was not, it was not curated for education, and there were no timelines, there were no maps or anything. So the most low-tech things we've known for 30, 40 years that actually works to facilitate understanding and comprehension of, of history, they were not there. So even in, in 2020, in, in a very, very affluent school, we're seeing situations where the most basic things are not being deployed. So I, I unfortunately think that, that we are still looking at, le- we, we have a foundation we need to get in place. Mm-hmm. I think there are so many things that I'd love to do from an aspirational side. And I think we should continue to have a balanced bet where we say, let's spend 10% of the efforts on, on those high right. in the sky things. But I unfortunately think that for a, while, for a while to come, we really need to continue to focus on Let's make sure we cover our bases. Let's make sure that we leave nobody behind by giving them, giving them history texts that they have no chances to comprehend right. and where we're losing 80% of the students in the class because we have not even done what we know works. That's fantastic. And that is not because like, nobody, nobody wants to do it. Right. It's because we're still in a system where people get to the, to the limit of what they're capable right. of doing. And then at the end of the day, when you run out of time, you just make an assignment for the students and give them 20 pages to read. And then you say, come up with two questions yeah. for tomorrow. And I actually think that we can do a lot better than that. And if you go back to those fundamentals, no, I love that. And you're totally invited back anytime because you are so thoughtful about these things. But that's the point, right? You think about, how can I figure this out? How can I get inspired students? Let me come up with this great idea. I love this. They'll love it. They'll get excited by learning. You said to me a long time ago on this show... That and you took me through this exercise where it helped me understand adaptive, that even a person who, and I want you to explain this again, even a person who gets 8 out of 10 math problems right every lesson and maybe ends up at the course with a B or passing a course, depending on how they're graded, may not be able to do certain things because maybe those two of the 10 they got wrong were fundamental. Talk to me about how that can be assessed or understood. So one of the things that I've been deeply fascinated by is a lot of the work on what can we learn from how top performers learn? Could we actually translate that to normal learners or our average learners? And my opinion is we can. What top performers do is they constantly focus on their weak spots. They focus on the two things that they were not very good at. They basically, they're basically very, very good at doing what we call deliberate practice. They constantly focus on the things where they can improve. What we see when we observe non-perfect learners and non-optimal learners is that they're often celebrating the things they know and then they're ignoring this, the things they don't know or they're not that good at. And unconscious incompetence is a very, very like, pervasive problem. We've shown whether it's higher ed, educa- uh, higher ed populations or whether it's in the corporate sector that it's, it's double digits that are unconsciously incompetent. And, and uh, one of the companies we work with right now, they, 
they told me this story where they'd built a mentoring program where they'd hired, I think, a couple of hundred mentors, but nobody showed up to be mentees. They had no, they had no self-perception that they needed to change or they needed help or they needed uh, learning. And I think that that is, a, that is a huge difference. And that is the problem with that 8 out of 10 where you, unless you actually work on perfecting what you're doing, unless you work on closing your gaps, there's a big risk that, that you're losing the total plot. So how does that translate then into, if you had your way, how do you take what you've learned and the science behind it and translate that to curriculum in the classroom today? So let's say we've redesigned this. What piece has to become adaptive? And are there products and services out there right now, whether at the lower levels of education or at the higher ed level, that can help institutions right now do that? So I think that, that um, the number one area to focus on is that the time that you're learning on your own. And the time learning on your own defined as if you're doing homework, you're sitting alone with your book, you're sitting alone with your assignment, or you're sitting in class and the teacher is saying the same to 20, 30 students for about 45 minutes. That's also kind of learning on your own. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in, higher, if you're in college and and the, the professor is preaching to 300 right. in an auditorium. Yeah, that's also days. learning on your yeah, own, right? Exactly. So in these situations, what could we do differently? I'm not talking about the small group work where you're working to with three of your fellow students to try to come up with a, a new innovation or you're trying to come up with a, a debate argument or something. That's not what we should try to address. We should address all the time during a week, which may amount to up to 80 90% of your time if you include the time in, in lectures and in classrooms where the teacher is just uh, telling you stuff one way, that time can probably be redistributed and can be where, where you can learn more efficiently with technology because technology does have a huge advantage that it is able to give you help in these mm-hmm. situations the same way as a GPS in your car actually helps you find your way. So it corrects you. So a GPS kind of corrects and goes, oh, we have to reroute you somewhere. Please go up to the next street, make a U-turn. Yeah. Adaptive learning is go make a U-turn, right? It's don't keep going forward because you missed you missed something. And then this is when learning gets more complicated, right? Because humans are, are not, the brains do not work like maps. There is no one way, or there is no truth on how to get from A to B. So the reality is that with humans, we now also need to take motivation into account. How do we actually get people to stay motivated while we're on that journey? So we both need to help say, it may be not be the best way to turn left next time. And also, you really want to try to move more in that direction. So we're dealing with a problem that is a lot more complicated than making a GPS. But directionally, that's the way you need to go, where you need to find ways that depending on what you do, and also if you take the wrong turn, or if you take a turn that is not optimal, that we get something good out of it. So you basically have to have multiple different ways to treat multiple different people. And you contributed to a program, I remember you told me, when you were at McGraw-Hill, that did that for math, in part. It still wasn't the perfection that we're driving for, but is that reaching some of our publishers, many of our publishers, and getting in front of our students? Last night we also listened from, to Diane Tavener from Summit Public Schools. We both know Diane. She's been on Reality Check before. She personalized learning, which our friends at CZI and others are supporting. So is that 
what we have to do is pull back, redesign the program, and create the tools that help the student drive or make a U-turn? Yeah, so, uh, so what, what Diane and others are doing at the, at the like, gold standard level, which, that's when we invest teachers in it. And when we are able to do this, which I think we should continue to do in the future. What, where I think technology can play a role is in the uh, situations where you don't have the luxury of having a teacher. Already now, so I'm not talking about reducing anything, I'm just saying already now the reality is that, that we have a lot of learning going on where there is no help. That's when technology can help in a different way. And it's already helping. Like if, if, if students get stuck today with a math problem, it's a much better world today where they can go to look it up at Khan Academy than they could before. Right. It, it, of course that's a better situation right. than in the 80s where you would be like, uh, who do I ask? Yeah. If, your, if your mom and dad were not get great at math, right. you were stuck. Right. And if so, your teacher didn't have time for you or maybe they weren't that exactly. great in something, maybe exactly. they happened to be put in math but they were an English teacher. That happens all the time. Right? So now you're saying there's a response. You can only look it up, but maybe there's a response. And then the next part is, like, can we, could we now build things that are underway also trying to understand what you're doing and give you the context for the, for the, uh, for the learning that is happening and then guide you from there? And that's where we have been. And we've built, we built uh, I think, close to 2,000 curricula with McGraw, both in math but also in all sorts of other areas, from accounting to zoology. Like, I think the only one we haven't built is cosmetology of the big ones. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, it's something where it has had a profound impact on higher education. And um, students are learning about, initially they can learn twice as fast. And for retention, it's about 10 times more efficient. But, it's, but we're still talking about that basic premise of let's get the building box in place. And then on top of that, now let's start to try to apply them. And the differentiator again in between sort of status quo, not based on learning science, and what you're describing is you're able to measure in real time whether the student is making progress. Yeah, we're using science to, to constantly say, can we find ways where we optimize these things that we can, that we can control when, when they're studying on their own? Can we, can we find things where we can measure that if we do it this way as opposed to that way, it works better? Or, it, uh, or even it works better in these situations. And that's why um, both, both artificial intelligence and other techniques can, can have a big impact on this. But, but it's also like uh, the CEO from Duolingo said this morning, like a lot of, a lot of the naivety around this and a lot of the, the false hopes are, are tied to people who are running around with hammers looking for nails. So there's also so many things that people hope will be solved mm-hmm. by this that won't be solved. I think we're looking at a very narrow part of it. It's a big part of the time a student spends, or a learner spends during a week that we can do something about. Mm-hmm. But it's also like that's not enough. We also need to make sure that if we can do something about this, how do we now empower the teachers? How do we augment right. what is happening when you're with the teachers, when you're with your peers, so that the things that will characterize human decision-making in the future communication, collaboration, creativity, critical right. thinking. These, these often referred to as 21st century skills. Right. right now, we don't have enough time for them. What if we can free up time to do more of that in the future? What if we can save the time that we need in the future so that we can do this instead of grading homework and, and doing the futile stuff where you're reading the text seven times without really getting it? Right. And so at the heart of what you're saying is there can be programs, there can be curriculum, there can be publishers, there can be independent schools or schools that are like Summit. But until this all across the board 
until we're measuring and using data to change behavior, we're not going to make progress. It's an interesting question because it could be the lack of mentees problem. Like nobody thinks they need help. I honestly don't blame anybody in the K-12 system for not just moving on a dime because right. why, why would they trust And That's why we, I, I, I'm working hard with other learning sciences to see can we establish standards so that in the future we get what we have right. in medicine where, where we compare science. We say, this one really has really strong science. We should do this. Right. We, I, I think there's no reason to, to ask anybody to change before we get closer to that. Um, I think where will we see the change the f- like first? I think um, if, if, we look at, um, if, if we look at the story from the senator from Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania this morning who said the number one thing I hear from companies in Pennsylvania is they cannot get educated uh, labor. Uh, we need help to get people who can help us run our companies. Great point. That's, of course, why we're seeing a landslide over the last five years in terms of corporations' willingness to take a responsibility. Not because they For suddenly... upscaling and training exactly. and everything. And not because they suddenly, in, in their CSR policy, corporate social responsibility policy, decided we, we want to take more responsibilities because this is business critical. We need to take more responsibility for training people for what we need, not to send them to college for a four-year degree, but to say we need to make sure that when they come with a basic education, how do we now make sure that they can do what we need here? Because they may not come with a data science uh, background, or they may not come with X, Y, or Z background, but companies can take a bigger responsibility there, and they're doing that right now. So actually, ironically, while... Ten years ago, higher ed was moving really fast because there was a really objective yardstick, which was if you got through college, if you got a higher grade, that was what was driving right. this. So if you could prove with, with science that you got higher grades and you, got, you had less dropout rates, students were adopting it, professors were adopting it, schools were adopting it. And McGraw-Hill, more than anybody else, had a, had a great run doing this. And, and still, it's, it's the, I think, the centerpiece of their business to deliver towards this promise and, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and this science. But what is moving fastest now is definitely the corporate space. In K-12, I completely understand the teachers who are saying, okay, enough. Show us, show us with tangible data right. that it works. And that's what, why organizations like, like Lieb Innovation with Phyllis Lockett that I've been working with for years, um, where they've been trying and built these, these yardsticks where we're saying, what does personalization mean? So when you say, is, is personalization the answer? Yes. But we need to agree on what personalization means. Personalization, among other things, is how many times the last week did you influence what you were doing? Exactly. Did your teachers just tell you what to do or did you have an influence do you on ha- it? Did you have data to support that? Yes. And that's what's really hopeful, what you just said about, and we've been seeing this, obviously, but the fact that the workforce is moving more quickly and we're hearing conversations not just about we got to go train these people to answer phones, to be work in a factory, or to be managers. We want to make sure they have the skills, um, the traits, as someone said yesterday, not just the skills, to be able to advance. Because if they advance as an employee, if they learn more, then they're much more likely to stay with us, which is what companies want. And so they benefit when they contribute. The other thing I thought was incredibly hopeful, and whether you're talking like Amazon or Google or Microsoft or some of the other companies that we hear and see all the time, when you help these families and these workers get a higher education, that could translate into credentials. 
it could be that it could translate into two plus two, and eventually they may get a bachelor's they never thought they needed or wanted that could also help them accelerate into another field. And so maybe that'll push higher ed because they're going to start taking, and they have started taking the job away from some higher ed, right? Let's face it. And that might be able to push down on sort of the K-12 or the pre-K through 12 system, which is not delivering, in most cases, those skills, soft and hard skills, to students to be able to actually arrive at the workplace. One of the things that, that is striking is that you should think that companies are coming to us saying, we need product training for our new product launch. They're also doing that. But the, but the two top things they're asking for is management skills and soft skills. They're asking for generic skills that are actually not specifically tied to, I want to be the best outboard um, engine mechanic in the world, or we need to educate 100 of those. That's not the number one thing they're asking about. The number one thing that companies are struggling with right now, in my um, perception, is how do we actually teach the generic thinking skills, the generic soft skills, the communication skills? How do we, how do we uh, address some of these things that are not specifically job-related? Having said that, the second, part, the second uh, largest problem is how do we teach the things that are very, very specific to our company, mm-hmm. the way we do things, right. our culture, our products, right. our procedures, and way, way after that is... How do we teach people how to make pivot tables in Excel? Right. Because who, who, ever, who knows somebody in their, among their friends and family who woke up on a Wednesday morning said, saying, I want to do a course on pivot tables. They don't. They, they're looking at either what does it mean to be a human in the future yeah. or what does it mean for me to be a, an employee in this company. And that's where like, I think that there is great hope because companies are, are taking the responsibility now in a unprecedented way. We've never seen this before. Okay, let me just, final question for you. If I channeled my parents, um, they would say, you know, because they came up from nothing and, and became moderately successful people and raised moderately successful adults, they'd say, why do we need soft skills? I mean, you guys were fine. You know, why do we need any of this stuff? Why do I have to worry about whether or not my kids get that? Didn't it happen automatically? What's your answer to that? It doesn't happen automatically. I think one of the books that is worthwhile reading is Esther Wojcicki's book on how to raise highly successful people. Being the mother of, um, I think, the highest-ranked woman at Google, Sarah Wojcicki, who runs YouTube, and, and uh, her other uh, daughter, who runs 23andMe. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote this book, being an educator. She's built one of the most amazing educational institutions in Palo Alto, where, where she uses journalism to teach all the things that tie things together. And basically what, what, her, what her hypothesis is, that this comes down to trick, she calls it. Basically, it's trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. So I think that, that there are some of these fundamental things, that they are the reasons why people excel. And I think that we're, we're dealing with something where it's really rare that you have this potential that we just need to not destroy, like, like particularly with kids, like there, there is so much potential that really wants to grow. We want to learn. We want to grow. Like if we are able to groom that and, and nurture that, I think we have enormous potential. But, but it comes to to answer your parents' uh, question. It comes to what do we do with it? How do we establish the circumstances around that learning? Well, and you just answered part of the question too for me personally. Um, and I remember Esther. How do you say her last name? Wojcicki. Esther Wojcicki, fascinating person. I remember her saying at the GSV Summit last year, it's also about letting people fail. Yes. Letting them make mistakes and not picking them up. 
and we were allowed to fail. We failed a lot. We got chastised for failing, and it made us want to succeed. And no one was jumping in front of us to prevent us from, not make, from making the team, not making the team, or from doing something stupid. So we fell and rose on our own because that's just the way they were. And so part of this today is we don't want to let our kids fail. And so in school, we don't want to let them fail. And there's the jokes about everyone gets a trophy and you don't want to put a red mark on the paper. And we've written about this and talked about it. It sounds facetious, but it turns out it's true. And science kind of proves that. But there is this weird thing where it's like, what, what if we think about it the other way? Like, so Esther is also, together with Tony Wagner, who wrote Creating Innovators and yeah. other books, um, and most likely to succeed, like, they're both saying there should only be two grades, A and incomplete, which is actually a paradox, um, or could sound like it, but it isn't, because the whole point here is you have to fail, but you also have to be given the chance to improve. Like, the only reason why we're not allowing uh, kids to continue to re- Uh, hand in their assignments again and again and again. Mm -hmm. It's just for practical reasons. We don't have the bandwidth to look at it again. But think about it. Why would we actually not let somebody who is taking advice try to fix their work? And then at the end of it, when it's good, we give them an A. But that's because the way we use assessment and the way we try to use some of these things is we want to put a label on their forehead saying, like, you're a B-minus student. Instead of saying, at very short cycles, it's like, what do we do next? I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to figure out I'm going to ask you a question to figure out what we're doing next. And there's two, different, complete, two completely different kinds of assessment. One is to, to put a label on people. The other one is to guide what we're doing, sometimes referred to summative and formative assessment. And formative assessment can be magical because that's the thing that can guide what we do as teachers. Right, exactly. Whereas summative assessment is something is one that and is... Done. Yeah. It's one and done. It, it's you a, got 90%, we're you yeah. got 80%, you're done. Yeah. And, and I won't forget, and I'm sure other people have examples like that out there, I will not forget actually getting a paperback from a professor four times. A D, Ms. Abate, you could do better, my maiden name. A C, getting there, but I'm a little tired of reading this again. The B, and then finally, the A and a plus, I knew you could do it. And that was painful, but there was an evolution. And I kept going back and saying, and and at first, I was like, oh my gosh, he's so wrong. I know what play, I mean, it was all about political philosophy, so it was tough. Oh, I know what I'm doing. And I made my way there, and I still have this impression, and I can picture, I can actually visually picture that letter on that, and he gave me a chance to do that. And, and that is that formative assessment, and that is, in a way, without the machine, the technology, that one-on-one interaction that allowed me to do that, you're right, why can't we translate that to millions more people? We can. It doesn't take millions more teachers. It takes using the lessons effectively and using technology effectively, which is so exciting that we are on the precipice of using this and, in some places, already doing it. Alra Christensen, thank you so much for joining me on Reality Check. I'm Jeannie Allen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.